People of God, let us continue now our series in Luke's Gospel, turning again to the 11th chapter of Luke. I have explained to you why I am using the authorized version, the King James, for this portion of Luke's Gospel, but remind you that I am doing so, and if anyone has a question about it, just feel free to ask, and I will be glad to explain in more detail. Luke's Gospel, we've come to this portion and have been looking at this portion of Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Let us go to the throne of grace together. Almighty God and our Father, this minister would praise you, and I know that many of your people here will join me in praise that you died for me, that the Lord Jesus shed his blood for me on the cross, that he rose from the dead for my justification, that the effectual call of the Holy Spirit was applied to my life and to my heart. And as your people are gathered here only because of the work of sovereign free grace which you have wrought, we ask that that work of sovereign grace will continue on in our lives as we day by day and week by week come to your word to hear it preached or to read it. And as we submit our hearts to that word, asking that the Lord Jesus will be exalted in our hearts and in our lives and asking that this church will be a church that lives consciously under the authority of your holy word. But Father, undoubtedly there are those here who do not know Christ, and they are lost and undone, and they need a Savior. And we pray also that as we, your people, worship your name, and as we read thy holy word together, that those who are outside of Christ would be driven out of every refuge and drawn to the Savior, that the word that is preached today may be preached by Christ himself, ultimately, to the heart of each and every one of us here. And these things we ask humbly, trembling at your word, reverently and with joy, to our Father in heaven, through the only mediator of God and man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you now stand for the reading of God's Word? Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say... Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, people of God, though the word order in Luke differs from Jesus' teaching of this prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth, rather than thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the meaning is precisely the same. 
We can believe that the Lord Jesus taught in many different places and on many occasions the Lord's Prayer, and the wording would not always be uh, just the same. But the petition that is before us this morning, Thy will be done, addresses the heart very pointedly and very powerfully because it probes the heart with this implicit question, what do I want? I mean way down deep within my heart, what do I want? Where is my heart? Upon whom, upon what does my heart focus? Do I understand that self-denial is at the heart of my Christianity so that God's will is my chief desire Do I wish that my will conform to his will in all things, that his will be my chief delight? And so the petition speaks of God's will. Thy will be done. God's will is one, but we distinguish for our understanding two aspects of the one undivided will of God. And so let's begin by asking the question, what is the will of God? And first, first, we speak of God's decretive will, his decretive will. God wills. He is infinitely intelligent. He is volitional. He is not impersonal. He is never confused with his creation. He decrees and determines the goals and details of his creatures according to his sovereign will. God's will is sovereignly free. God has free will. Nothing is done by him under compulsion. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. God wills all that he does, and God does all that he wills. The sovereign Lord always accomplishes his purpose, in whose hands are all things and every heart. God's will is beyond our ability to trace out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, For of him, through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Now, to know this intellectually is of no value to your Christian life if it does not begin to affect your heart. I believe in a sovereign God who has a sovereign will. This affects how I live. This teaches me that no matter what experience I may have in life, that God is in it, that I can rely upon him and trust him, that he has a sovereign overall purpose that he is fulfilling These are the things that should be applied to your heart and to mine. That God's will is good because our God is good. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That God's will is good, but it is not always comprehensible to us. Indeed, his infinite knowledge, who can comprehend? Now, part of Christian growth is learning how to believe God's word when the facts seem to contradict God's good will toward us. How important all of this is, because you see, a low view of God, which is unhappily very typical in the church today, a low view of God is detrimental to your Christian life. But to be able to say, using the words of Jonathan Edwards, to lie low before God is in the dust, that I might be nothing, that God might be all, that I might become as a little child, This is that to which, that attitude of heart to which we should be led when we pray, thy will be done. Great God, how infinite art thou, how poor and weak are we. Let the whole race of creatures bow and pay their praise to thee. Thy throne eternal ages stood, ere seas or stars were made. Thou art the ever-living God, were all the nations dead. 
So we just sang. And so we first of all think of God's will, we think of his decretive will, his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. How great our God is, who sits upon a throne and rules and reigns, who doesn't sit upon a throne wringing his hands, wondering if his sovereign will can be accomplished, but he is absolutely sovereign, and he is the God of the decree. But also when we speak of God's will, we speak of his, secondly, his prescriptive will. God's will of precepts, his command, the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, and there is no contradiction between God's decretive will and his preceptive will. God has one will, though how God's decretive will and will of precept relate will certainly not be clear to us. God's will of decree is his decision about what he will do. His will of precept revealed in the Bible, his will of command, tells you and me what we ought to do. Uh, Pharaoh, God, God says to him, let my people go. But God did not decree that he would let God's people go. And yet Pharaoh was responsible to obey God's precept and command. And so we speak here of his ethical will, the reflection of God's holiness in all of his commands. And so thirdly, let's ask this question, for which do we pray when we pray, thy will be done? Are we praying for his decretive will, or are we praying for his will of command? Well, God's will, as I said, is one. Uh, this is a problem for us, but not for God. And with God, we must leave it so that, after all, it does not become a problem for us. If we desire to obey God's will, we also desire that his decree be accomplished, because prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. There's the Lord Jesus. In eternity past, in counsel, the triune God determined that he would come and he would bow the knee in Gethsemane that he would go to the cross and he would bear our sins in his own body on the tree. And yet in his full human nature, perfect human nature, he must cry out, Lord, thy will be done, not mine. When it comes to death, are we able to pray along with the book of Job, the Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I was thinking about this just the other day. John Owen, the great Puritan that I've so often referenced and quote and read and spend time in, John Owen and his wife had 11 children, 10 of whom died in infancy. His one daughter grew to adulthood, and soon after her marriage, she died. Do we have that kind of heart that bows before the sovereign will of God and can say, Thy will be done? Gordon Reed, one of my pastors, was out in his front yard doing some work one day, and someone came up on a bicycle, a little boy, Pastor Reed, Pastor Reed, come quickly, your son has been hit by a car. He went down the road to find his own son there in a, in a pool of blood. By the way, he lived. But the question is, do you understand it is not only that God brings good out of such circumstances, but that God decrees such situations. 
Now that's beyond us. Smiley says of the Covenanters, our Scottish forefathers, it was the faith of the Covenanters that nothing can fall out by chance. And that's why those men and women had steel in their backbones. He said the Genevan Creed, by which he means biblical Calvinism, the Genevan Creed has bred a glorious multitude of stalwart natures. In other words, our forefathers were the kinds of Christians who could say, I don't live in a chance universe. Men are fully responsible for the sin that they commit, and yet God is sovereign to determine whatsoever comes to pass. And that mystery I leave in his hands, but it is fraught with blessing for your Christian life. So you ask the question, how God's decretive will, his preceptive will, how these things relate? God knows, and I trust him with that knowledge. But I would direct your attention sometime to Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, and Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 28. For in both of those passages, we are told the cross is predestined. The cross is no accident. It is determined by God. And yet it also teaches us that sinful men are fully responsible for putting the Lord of glory to death. Both of these things are true. In all of life, we are called to obey the Lord. In all of life, we are called to be submissive to God's sovereign will. So having, having some understanding of what we mean by the will of God, let's then fourthly ask the question, for what do we pray when we pray, thy will be done? And I would like to help us understand several things. When we pray, thy will be done, we are praying for a heart that desires to obey God in every sphere of life. Our Lord Jesus came into this world, John six thirty eight. for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. We want that attitude, not an attitude of forced resignation, but an attitude of delight in the will of God, which is true of you and me. I want to be an obedient son. You should want to be an obedient son or daughter ethically, and I want your sovereign will in my life should be our prayer. And so in small things, housework, for example, is not a necessary evil. It is God's calling in your life. Wherever you may work, whatever God may have you doing, this is where the Lord has called me and I will be cheerful because I want him to be glorified as I have a submissive heart to his will. I'm praying for a heart that desires to obey God in every sphere of life. But also, as we pray thy will be done, we are praying for grace to accept what God wills for us no matter what that may be. You know this verse. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God that we had died in this wilderness? That murmuring, that complaining, that failure to understand that they needed grace to accept what God's will for them was. Well, grace teaches us that there is a kindness in our hardships. Martin Luther said that you simply cannot understand some of the Psalms until you go through hardship. And that's true. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, The water of affliction, the water of affliction is not to drown us, but to wash off our spots. But then also, when we pray, Thy will be done, we are praying for grace, listen, for grace to renounce our own wills. When our wills conflict with the Lord's will. Amy Carmichael, 
And shall I pray to change thy will, my Father, until it be according to mine? But no, Lord, no, that shall never be. Rather, I pray thee, blend my human will with thine. And so rather than that detestable indifference and that attempt to be neutral about the will of God that so often fills our hearts when we try to live our Christian lives, we should ask for grace to renounce our own wills when our wills contradict and conflict with what God has revealed about himself and his will in his word. This is losing my life in order that I may find it. Pastor Reed, whose son was there in that pool of blood, that night was taken to the emergency room. And Gordon tells of the time when on his knees in front of his son, who there was right between life and death, he was able to say, Father, he's not mine, he's yours. Thy will be done. Now, only grace can give a heart like that, that a father can pray like that. But that is that for which we pray. Maybe there's some young lady or some young man in this congregation, and you know that you shouldn't be having a relationship that is a dating relationship that could lead to marriage with this particular individual. You don't see life in them or any great interest in the things of God, or you're attracted to them and you're attracted immensely, but thy will be done is praying for grace to renounce our own wills when our wills conflicts with the Lord's will. In other words, thou shalt have no other God before me, is that for which we're praying. Least of all, the God of my own will. It's Colossians 3, 1 and following. If then ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. But also... As we pray, thy will be done, we are praying for grace to obey as faithfully as the inhabitants of heaven. Now, how do the inhabitants of heaven obey? They obey universally. They don't pick and choose. I'll obey this, but not that. They obey without weariness. They obey with humility. They obey joyfully. They obey readily. They obey constantly. They obey reverently. They obey diligently. They obey zealously. We are praying, Lord, in my life and in the lives of your people, help us to begin to learn by grace as the angels do in heaven to obey you universally unweariedly, humbly, joyfully, readily, constantly, reverently, diligently, and zealously. As the angels in heaven, so we should long for God's will. Psalm 103, verse 20, Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. There's something else for which you pray when you pray, Thy will be done. You are also praying... We are praying that we might have grace to trust the Lord in the dark. Abraham, take your son, your only son, to a mount that I will show you, and there sacrifice him. 
Three days he journeyed to Mount Moriah. There he climbed Mount Moriah with the wood for the fire upon his son's back, leaving all others behind. Father, there is the fire, the wood for the fire, but where is the sacrifice for the offering? My son, God will provide himself sacrifice for the offering. He bound his own son and placed him upon the altar of sacrifice. And just as he raised his dagger to plunge it into the breast of his own only son, the angel of the Lord stopped his hand, showed him the ram in the thicket. Abraham obeyed God in the dark. Surely he must have thought this contradicts all that I know about God's goodness. Every other time the Lord's voice had come to me and he spoke to me. He had spoken to me good things. Now he wants me to sacrifice my own son. Abraham could not have known that God was setting up a type that would point to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, the substitute of sinners on that day on Mount Moriah. Just do what I say, Abraham. Now, God is not going to speak to you in the night. He has spoken to you and speaks to you in his word. And sometimes he calls upon you to do those things from his word that are hard to do. You do not understand how good may come of them, and you act in the dark. You just obey his word. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. You think of the book of Job. Job had lost his family, lost his children, lost his goods, lost his property, lost his health. He had lost all but the Lord. And all through the book of Job, he is trying with miserable helpers to understand what God is doing in his life. And you remember toward the end of the book that God shows him something of the wonder and glory of his power. And basically at the end of the book, God says to Job, if I may paraphrase the meaning, he says to him, look, Job, you don't understand. You're not going to understand. You look to me. I understand. And that is enough. Hmm? That is what we're praying for when we pray, thy will be done. Let me ask you, isn't it true that where we most struggle with God's will is in times of affliction? It's not a struggle to believe God's will toward me is good when the things that come our prosperity and joy, and but boy, when things are hard, we get on our knees and we say, where is God? Just as with the 73rd Psalm that we read this morning, the psalmist didn't understand where God was, the, the wicked are prospering, until I went into the sanctuary of God, he found relief for his soul when he simply believed God. So here we most need to renounce our sinful, self-centered wills and trust Christ when we are going through trials 
and when we are afflicted. There we need to remember, I'm not competent to judge. I submit to what God has said. There we need to remember whatever happens, God has proven his love to me in the cross, that God demonstrated his own love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So whatever this affliction is, it's not hatred. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are, who are in Christ Jesus. He has proven his love to me. He sent his son for me. He died for me. So people of God, when you're going through afflictions, God is not saying, I hate you. He's loving you even though you may not see how. There we need to remember the psalmist's words, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. There we need to remember that Romans 8.28 is not a pious platitude, but Romans 8.28 is God's promise. All things work together for the good of those who are called of God to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good to those who are called, the called, the effectually called of God. All things without exception. Can you remember that when you go through affliction? And then when we pray this prayer, we're praying for one other thing. We are praying for the consummation of all things. Matthew, on earth as it is in heaven... Luke, thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. And so we are praying that earth and heaven ultimately be one in this great matter of doing God's will. That every believer has a longing for that day is sure. How far my will is from wanting your will to be done, Lord, but I really, really know where my deepest commitments lie. The Spirit of God within me is showing me that this should be my chief prayer, my greatest design and delight, and I'm looking forward to that day in which there's no admixture of sin in my heart, and your will will be perfectly done in my heart and by all the saints. The fulfillment belongs to God's will, and it will be done. That God's will of sovereign decree and God's will ethically will be done by redeemed sinners will be fulfilled ultimately when heaven and earth are collapsed in the eternal day. And when we live in that day, When we live in that day, in that day of glory, in which all of God's will will be perfectly done, oh, how good to look back upon this day and to say, even though I lived in a day where men did not care anything about doing the will of God, yet your people did, and now I see it completely, ultimately, and utterly fulfilled, just as you have promised. All will be in harmony with God's will in that day. Now, that is that for which we pray when we pray, thy will be done. That and more. But I want, fifthly, to bring some final applications. I can only bring a few. Not that we haven't been applying all along, but there's some things that I want to make very, very plain. The first application that I want to make very plain to everyone here is to truly pray this prayer Do you know what it takes? To truly pray this prayer, it requires that we be new creatures in Christ. It requires the new birth. It requires a converted soul. You may repeat this prayer, but you cannot really pray, and you cannot pray this prayer, thy will be done, until your will is changed 
And until you know Jesus, and until he regenerates you and grants you the new birth and gives to you saving faith, and you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so we just have to start there. If there is someone here and you do not know Christ, then you cannot really understand the meaning of this prayer, and you cannot pray this prayer from the heart because you are completely wrapped up in your own will and your own way. That's what the Scriptures teach. You need a Redeemer. You need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ, who alone can set you free from your self-will. But then when we have come by His sovereign grace to know the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are converted, something very strange happens. Your own will becomes your greatest grief. Because we are renewed, we hate our own way, and we strive against it. We now love the will of God, and we desire His honor. And so the Christian constantly pours over the pages of Scripture, what is your will, Lord? How may I please you, Lord? And we read 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. We read in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. We read in Psalm 119, 36, incline your heart unto thy testimonies, incline my heart unto thy law. For this we now long, though imperfectly. And when you long for it, though imperfectly, you really want it in the depths of your soul, though you struggle for it. When the Holy Spirit is working in your life savingly, this this is a mark of true conversion. And so the Christian begins a struggle in his life. A struggle to pray from the heart, thy will be done when I still so much want my own will. And so we begin to pray, if you want me to be prosperous, send it. If you want me to have hardship, give me the grace to bear it in a God-centered way. You know what is best. Let me not balk. Let me not disobey. Let me not submit grudgingly. Christ did the Father's will in going to the cross for me. Now I am honored to seek God's will in my own life out of gratitude for what he did for me. Your glory means more to me than my comfort. I long to know Christ in this affliction. I will not fume as an ungodly man. I want the attitude of my Savior when he prayed, Shall I not drink from the cup my Father has given me? Help me, Lord, now to respond out of love to God from a renewed heart, more and more as I grow and mature as a Christian, thy will be done. That's fundamentally the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. That's the difference between a heart touched by saving grace and one that is left to his own devices and left in his sin, which is true of you. Now, young people, I really want to speak to you. child, young person, since the fall of Adam, every sinner descending from him by ordinary generation, that is everyone but Christ who is virgin born, who is no sinner, every descendant of Adam has wanted his own way and his own will. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. We walk 
after the spirit of the air, the power of the air, we desire those things that are contrary to God's will from the womb. And if you are a young Christian, then you are beginning to have this struggle within your heart. And the way in which you begin to overcome it, among the several things I could mention, what I want to say to you now, you find it in this book. Just as I said to Maggie this morning, stay in this book. Let your mind be absorbed with Christ in this book. Let your mind be saturated by the truths of this book. Let the will of God become more important to you than your own will and your own way. Let me tell you about loving God's Word. Let me tell you about a shepherd lad. A shepherd lad whose name was John Brown. John Brown was a shepherd in Scotland many, many, many years ago. And this was in the days when he would be shepherding. And of course, he had no iPhone. He had no iPad. You know what he did? He wanted to know God. And he wanted to know the Bible. And so he wanted to read his Bible when he shepherded the flock. But he wanted to know the Bible not only in his English Bible. He wanted to know the Bible in the original And so he borrowed a Greek New Testament from a minister. Now, he had had a little Latin because Latin was common property in those days, but not Greek. He had had just a little Latin, and he made good use of the little that he knew. He took a Latin Bible, and he took his Greek New Testament, and he began to compare them. So he went to all the proper names, and that's how he learned the alphabet and how to pronounce the words. Then he would go to short verses, and he would compare the Latin and the Greek, and that's where he built a vocabulary and began to understand something of the grammar. And he did this until he could begin to read the Greek New Testament. And in the midst of his shepherding, he earned money, and he saved enough to go and buy a Greek New Testament of his own. Well, he didn't go to the the local bookstore and put in an order. He walked 23 miles barefooted to St. Andrew's. He had a friend care for his flock just for one night. He left in the night, arrived in the morning. He walked in, and he came to the proprietor, and he said, I've come here. He was 16 years old. He said, I've come here to buy a Greek New Testament. What will you, with a New Testament, you cannot read it? He said, I'll try. And about that time, the professors from St. Andrews walked in the bookshop, one of them probably the Greek professor. He listened to the conversation. He took the Greek New Testament. He put it on the table, and he said, young man, if you can read this, you'll have it for free. He picked it up, and he read it and walked out with his Greek New Testament. In that Greek New Testament, there's a biography of John Brown by, a, by a, a, a man named Mackenzie who wrote in the early 1900s, and by that time, the same New Testament had been passed down five generations in his family. That boy loved the Bible, became a minister of the gospel, became a theological professor. Now, I am not saying, young person, if you really want to know God, you have to learn to read Greek and Hebrew. I'm not saying that at all. I'm speaking of the passion of the heart. Do you see? The passion of the heart that wants to know God so much that it's willing to set aside those things that can absorb, all of those things that distract from God's will and way, all of those things that detract from the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And I really want God's Word to take hold of my heart and take hold of my life. Young people, I cannot, as your pastor, tell you anything more important than that. Will you hear me? Will you hear Christ through my words? Get in the book. 
Let it control your affections, your will, your way. Because everything out there in the world is going to tell you, do what you want, follow your own way, follow your own will. But you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you know that is not true. That's a lie of the evil one. And when you go to the sermon, or when you open your Bible, you're not simply here or reading to acquire knowledge. I mean intellectual knowledge, as important and essential as that is. You read your Bible to know God. Because that's where he has revealed himself. And so I call upon you, young man, young woman, to thirst, to hunger and thirst for God. And you find him revealed on the pages of Holy Scripture. And this side of heaven, there is an open Bible on the pulpit. And we are pilgrims on the way under the authority of this word. And may there also be a Bible open on your young lap every day until you grow old and God takes you home. And when you go to your Bible, or when you go to sermon, when you go to worship, when you open that Bible on your lap, then young person, go to it with this prayer. Thy will be done. Where? On earth? Even as it is in heaven? Where in my heart, in my life, thy will be done. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.